If you have a Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to read verses 34 and 35 today. 34 and 35. This is Matthew with an uh, authorial or a, a narrator's note. He says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Quote, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Since Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God, Matthew spoke this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, these are the very words of God. You may have a seat. But like I said, the, uh, the text today doesn't really have... I, I, I couldn't come up with, with application points like I've been doing uh, recently. Um, what, what I have here, what I've brought with me is um, outline or sermon number three that I wrote this week because I just I struggled with it. I told Christy over and over, I just battled with how to, how to, how to get this out. I studied the passage and I, and I worked with it and it was just, it was like one of those passages where they're just there's either far too much and it's it could be extremely uh, detailed and technical and 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 my uh, personality tends to make things far too complicated and I didn't want to do that um, or it, it could just be supremely surface level and vague and I didn't want to do that either and so I'm hoping that that God will be gracious and will again that we'll just be able to behold Christ. That's the goal, is to look at Jesus and behold Him in all of His grandeur and glory as the, 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 the substance of all that God's been doing. So we have what's obvious in our Bibles is even offset. We have a reference to another Old Testament passage of Scripture, a passage from one of the Psalms. And this reminds us again of the Jewishness of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew being a Jew, Levi, the tax collector, converted and brought into the discipleship of Jesus, is now writing this Gospel, most believe, writing back to a Jewish audience to convince them of the Messiahship or the kingship of Jesus. So in chapter 1 of Matthew, we had a genealogy where Matthew takes Jesus and connects Him to Abraham and King David, showing the Jews he has the blood. He's from the right line. Okay? In chapter 10, as Jesus sent out his disciples, Matthew reminds us and his readers that Jesus told his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, to us it, sound, it could come off as, as almost offensive. But to a Jewish people... It would be, it would be uh, the opposite of offensive to say that this man has come to, to, to specifically draw 
the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Between chapter 1 and chapter 10, there are eight different places where Matthew specifically says this was to fulfill the words of a prophet. Eight different places. And he, and he quotes the prophets. He does the same thing in chapter 12 where there was a long section from uh, the prophet Isaiah. Quotes from Isaiah the prophet. And then he does the same thing here in chapter 13. So that's ten total explicit references to the Old Testament, the prophets, where Matthew says the life of Jesus directly fulfills something that the Old Testament prophet said in, in, the, in, in his life. A Gentile audience, they wouldn't have been impressed with this, but a Jewish audience, this would have been directly appealing to everything they had ever been taught about the Scriptures and about the Messiah. In other words, Matthew is screaming at his kinsmen to look at this man Jesus and believe on Him as the promised Messiah. Receive Him as the King. He's fulfilling the words of the prophets. Ten different places. Now guess how many times Matthew does this after chapter 13. One. One place after chapter 13 where Matthew says, this was to fulfill the words of a prophet. The point in all of that that I want you to see is this. What it seems to be, what Matthew seems to be doing at this point in his gospel is shifting the focus as he writes. It seems like chapters 1 through 13, he's trying to draw his Jewish readers. He's pulling them along. Look, he's fulfilling the prophets. He's fulfilling the prophets. He comes from the line of Abraham and the line of David. He sent his disciples to Jewish people. He fulfilled the prophets. He fulfilled the prophets. And then after this point, chapters 14 through 28, the focus is rejection of Jesus by the Jews. A focus on the ministry of the disciples and Jesus conversing with His disciples. And then the road to Golgotha as He's crucified by His Jewish people, His kinsmen. Interestingly, the last verse in chapter 13 says this, He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The end of chapter 13 ends like this, Jesus did all this in his hometown and they didn't receive him. So he didn't do many mighty works there. He's rejected by his own people. And then he moves on to chapter 14. So chapter 13 stands out as not just a focus on the kingdom of heaven, but also sort of the conclusion to the special pleas of Matthew to his Jewish kinsmen. Because after this point, it's like he shifts and he, and he kind of he stays Jewish in his focus. He's still Jewish as he writes, and the Jewish people would have still understood how he was talking. But at this point, it's almost like he says, "Look at how you Jews missed out on your Messiah." He, he there's only one more specific reference to the the prophets. So here's the question. 
If you were going to write to the Jews, we, we asked this in our small groups a couple times, if you were going to talk to a Jew, or talking to a group of Jewish people, and you were going to use their Scriptures to try to convince them or draw them along, pull them in, and help them to see this man is the Messiah, where would you go? What would you use? They don't accept our Scriptures. If you say Old Testament to them, they might say you watch your mouth. Because they don't believe in a New Testament. They have the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the, the, our Old Testament Scriptures, and that's it. There is no more. So if you're going to reason with them from the Scriptures, you're going to have to use our Old Testament. Well, to us, is Genesis through Malachi. To them, Genesis through Second Chronicles. That's all you have. What would you use to reason with them? And say, this is the man. This is the man. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at your own scriptures. Where would you go? Would you go to say Genesis 3.15? Where God promises that a seed of the woman Eve was going to crush the head of the serpent. The, the proto-evangelia. The first gospel. Maybe that's a good place to start. Or maybe we'd go to Genesis 22 and talk about the, the obvious relation between Abraham walking with his son up Mount Moriah where Isaac carries the wood of his that was about to be the, the instrument of his own death up that mountain to be sacrificed. But then he's not sacrificed because Abraham says God will provide a lamb, but He didn't provide a lamb. He provided a ram in a thicket. And then later Jesus comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe you could use that passage. Maybe they would see the connection. Mount Moriah more than likely being the very same mountain where Jesus was crucified. Or maybe you could go to Joshua chapter 5 where the, the leader of, of the Israelites, Joshua, saw a man standing, the commander of the armies of the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah Sabaoth. We sing the song, um, we talk about the Lord Sabaoth. Commander of the armies of the Lord. Well, the Jews know God is, he doesn't have a body. How could, how could Joshua see a man and that be Jehovah? Well, that's because it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. Or maybe you go to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And you could go to John 12, where John says, Jesus said, Jesus said, Isaiah saw me. It was Jesus who Isaiah saw. Maybe go to Isaiah 7 or Isaiah 9, those prophecies that we often talk about in December, where we read of a child being born to a virgin. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. He's not going to come as some Messiah king riding on the clouds. He's going to come as a child who is born king. Or we could go to Isaiah 53, which we've talked about several times recently and show that the Messiah had to be a suffering servant. Or we could go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 and prove to them that the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the second temple. Before 70 A.D., if He didn't come then, He's not going to come. We could go to all these places. Where would you go if you had to reason with the Jews, show them Jesus was the Messiah? Well, Matthew, at this point in his Gospel, chooses Psalm 78. And today we're going to look at this passage and we're going to answer the question, why Psalm 78? 
What does Psalm 78 do? And why does Matthew see it as important enough to, to put it in here? So we're going to look at these two verses. Verses 34 and 35. And I have two headings for these two verses. Heading number one, parables and the kingdom. And, then, and heading number two for verse 35, parables and the king. We'll talk about the importance of parables again and the, the teaching on the kingdom. And then parables and the king. The importance of parables and what necessity they play in Jesus' role as the Messiah. So, heading number one, parables and the kingdom. Verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. Now, in this verse, Matthew once again alludes to the method that Jesus uses for teaching about the kingdom of heaven. That being parables. And He also alludes, or we are reminded, of the reason behind this method. Now, I'll show you how we got that in a minute, but the reason behind this method is to reveal and conceal truth. Matthew says, all these things. He's referencing the parables up until this point, and I believe the parables after this point, all of the parables concerning the kingdom of heaven. All of these things, Jesus said to the crowds in parables, indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. When it says nothing, it means nothing concerning the kingdom. Nothing right here to these particular crowds. We know that Jesus said something that He didn't use parables for. So, when it says He said nothing, He means at this particular time, in this particular setting, to these particular people. So when we read that, the question then becomes, why would Jesus only speak to these people at this time about this subject in parables. And that reminds us that kind of uh, uh, we can recap here the twofold purpose of parables. The first one, which we've, we've studied the most, and this being to conceal truth from those to whom God had not chosen to reveal it. To conceal truth. To hide it. In verses 10 through 15 of Matthew chapter 13, the disciples come and they say, why do you speak to them in parables? And he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And then he goes on to explain, some do not have the spiritual ears necessary. And some do not have the spiritual eyes necessary. Some do not understand with their hearts and their minds the kingdom. Therefore... I'm going to speak to them in parables. I'm going to continue to use language that conceals the kingdom. And for this group, for those who don't have ears and those who don't have eyes and those who don't understand, the parables would have been like a smoke screen in front of their eyes to continue to confuse or bring more confusion to their already darkened hearts. The parables acted to conceal the truth. And then the second thing that parables do, a point we've hinted at and Jesus hints at and Jordan mentioned last week, is that they reveal in a special way the truth about the kingdom to those to whom God had chosen to reveal it. 
Again in verses, verse 11, Jesus said to His disciples, To you it has been given to know. I speak to them in parables because to you it has been given to know. God is sovereign over the revelation of His truth. And He's, he's bestowed that sovereignty on His Son. And His Son now, as He walks on the earth, has the supreme authority to say, I will reveal Myself and I will reveal the truth of the kingdom to whom I please. And to you it has been given, therefore I will disclose this information. Again, a, a verse that we've looked at many times, Mark 4.34, He did not speak to them without a parable. That is a parallel passage to what we're reading, reading today. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to His own disciples, He explained everything to His own disciples. This is the, a major point for today's passage. The parables worked to especially reveal truth. Even if Jesus had to go back and explain every little detail, like the two longer parables we've studied, to His disciples, the parables revealed very specific truths to the disciples and to those of us who have spiritual understanding that the common person wouldn't understand regarding the kingdom. And that's what verse 35 teaches, which we'll look at in a moment. So when Jesus taught, taught about the kingdom of heaven, He used parables. He did not use parables to be culturally relevant. He did not use parables because being semi-vague and being non-confrontational or being earthy or being poetic or being like a guru or a shaman with a little braid in his hair and beads and sandals on a rock talking about seeds and the grass and the birds was cool in his day. Many in our day think this is how Jesus was. And if we want to be like Jesus, then we've got to be cool, man. Just be like Jesus and just be cool, dude. Because Jesus spoke in parables. And so when you, when you go to a church that thinks this way, well, let's not present the Word of God in sermon style with objective truth in propositions and statements and commands and, and prohibitions of God's law and, and law and gospel distinctions. Let's just be cool and talk about proverbial statements that are just kind of, you know, people walk away saying, well, I... I think I kind of understood what was being said, but I'm not really sure. But, but that's cool, man, because that's how Jesus was. That's not why He used parables. He used parables because His goal was to conceal truth from those to whom it had not been given and to reveal truth to whom it had been given because as the Son of God, the eternal Word of God in human flesh, he had the supreme authority to reveal that to whom He pleases. And He still does. Heading number two. Parables and the King. Verse 35. Verse 35 says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then He quotes, I will open My mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. In this verse... He, he continues the thought or he continues to explain his reasoning for using parables and explains the redemptive historical significance of Jesus' use of parables, which I believe this is showing us that Jesus is, is showing by using parables and by teaching on the kingdom and by concealing and revealing, revealing, he's showing that He sums up in Himself 
all of salvific history in his earthly ministry, in his teaching and in his preaching, in all that he accomplished, it's all about him. Matthew's saying that by using parables, Jesus is saying, I'm trying to explain to you that I am the interpretive key to all of history and all that God has been doing in history in spite of your expectations. If you could understand what I'm saying about the kingdom, you will see I'm the king of that kingdom. That's what these parables do for us. If we understand this truth about how the kingdom works, there's no question about it. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. And these parables work to show that. Now, how did I get that? He says, the beginning of verse 35, this, referring to verse 34, Jesus' use of parables, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, that could have a, a few different meanings. It could mean that this was a direct fulfillment of a prophecy like Isaiah 7 or like Isaiah 53. Isaiah 7 says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we know that that was directly fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah 53, By his wounds we are healed. We know that's directly fulfilled in Jesus. When that was written, it couldn't refer to anybody else but Jesus. Or, when it says fulfilled, that could be a, a type, anti-type fulfillment. This would be like the tabernacle and its furniture was a type of Christ. In the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, the word for the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the Greek word for mercy seat is propitiation. The, the same word for propitiation in the New Testament. What do we learn there? We learn that that place where God would come down and meet with His people on the mercy seat is the place where God deflected His wrath from His people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that mercy seat. The mercy seat was the type. Jesus is the anti-type. Or, or we might could say um, Samson was a type of Christ. He was a judge of God's people. Now he was sinful and he, he did a lot of stupid things. But at the end of his life, what happened to Samson? He stretched out his arms and in his death, all of the people around him, they had gathered to mock him. And with his arms stretched out wide, he died. And in his death, he took out all of his enemies. And a type of Christ who hung on the cross with his hands spread out wide in his death. They thought they defeated him. But in reality, in his death, he was defeating all of his enemies. It's a type, anti-type. That's a way that prophecy can be fulfilled. Or we could say prophecy is fulfilled when a, a prophet does something and then Jesus finishes or accomplishes to its fullness what the prophet began. This would be like uh, Moses. He was a prophet. But in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, there will come a prophet after me. And he goes on to describe this prophet. Now there were many prophets after Moses, but we know that Jesus is the true and final, complete prophet, the very Word of God in human flesh. What Moses began, Jesus completed. Or, when it says this was to fulfill, it could also mean that what the prophet did, Jesus also did. And I believe that's what is being used here when it says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now it could, it could be argued that that 
Psalm 78 has deeper fulfillments. Now, I'm one of the types that I like to find the deepest fulfillment possible. And I like to find Jesus in every line and every page and every paragraph. And so I could probably preach a sermon and prove or try to prove that Psalm 78 has something deeper in it than what I'm about to show you. But I believe that it's easiest and most commonly held that what the writer of Psalm 78 was doing, Jesus is also doing in His giving of parables. Psalm 70, or the quote here from Psalm 78 verse 2, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That's Matthew's translation of this psalm. If you go back to that psalm, it's not word for word in our English Bibles. Um, There's a lot written on why this is a different wording. We won't go into all that. But this is basically Matthew's inspired translation of that verse. When he says, I will open my mouth in parables, what's he saying? The psalmist says, I will speak in parables. I'm going to use parabolic language. And he says, I will utter what has been hidden. Now, when Matthew uses this word utter, he, it literally says, I will gush forth like water spewing forth. I will gush forth hidden things, dark sayings. So again, I, I believe that when a New Testament author references a passage like this, very often he is assuming that his readers would have immediately had their minds taken away to the whole passage, or at least the whole theme of the passage. I've referenced uh, Psalm 22. When Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? The Jews around the cross could have finished that psalm as they stood there. Similar to us, if I were to say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you could all start singing that saved a wretch like me. That's how they use their songbook, the Psalms. So when he references Psalm 78 verse 2, the Jewish readers would have automatically in their minds known, ah yes, I remember that Psalm. It wasn't Psalm 78 to them. But they would have known what he was talking about. So Matthew is saying... What Jesus did when He spoke in parables, this was to fulfill. He was doing what the author of Psalm 78 was doing when He authored that psalm. So then the question is, what was Asaph doing or attempting to do in Psalm 78? And if we figure that out, then we'll know what Jesus is attempting to do in this giving of parables in reference to the kingdom. So turn with me to Psalm 78. It's taken us several months to go through Psalm 119 because it's the longest psalm. Psalm 78 might be the second longest psalm and we're going to cover it in probably about 10 minutes. But what I want to do is go through this psalm quickly and just notice the theme. It'll be up on the screen, broken up the way I'm going to talk about it. But it won't take very long before you realize what Asaph is doing. Psalm 78 says, A masculine of Asaph. Then verses 1 through 4, we have an introduction and he kind of explains his purpose. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear 
to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. That's our quote in Matthew. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. So he references the quote we have in Matthew. He says, I'm going to tell you the history where we've been, things that God has done from of old. And he references his, his summary of what he's about to do. is I'm going to tell you the glorious deeds of the Lord from of old. I'm going to tell you our history. What God has done, His glorious deeds. Okay? Verse 5. Verses 5-8. through eight. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. There He references points from Sinai and also points from Deuteronomy, the giving of the law. God gave the people the law and He references how they had rebelled in between the two points. He gave them the law, they rebelled, He had to give it to them again in, in Deuteronomy before they went into the promised land. But He gave them a law. Verses 9-11. through 11. The Ephraimites, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. Now it's important to remember Ephraim was the tribe that had been set at the head of all of the people of Israel. They were the leading tribe at the beginning. Reuben had sinned and so Ephraim, uh, the, one of the tribes that descended from Joseph. Joseph was actually set at the top but Joseph's two sons were adopted into the family. So Ephraim then becomes the leading tribe. Ephraim turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers... We'll stop at verse 11. So what happened in verse 11, 9-11? to Rebellion. The leading tribe rebelled. They broke the covenant. Alright, verses 12-16. through In the sight of their fathers He performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan... He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, He led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams of water come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. What's that a story of? That's a reference to the Exodus. He led them out of Egypt. And that's... Exodus all the way up through their meeting God at Mount Sinai. So that's pre-Sinai. Then verses 17 through 20. Yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He give bread or provide meat for His people? What's that again? That's rebellion. That's murmuring. That's complaining. More than likely, 
descriptive of what happened in the book of Numbers. Verse 21. Therefore, when the people heard, or when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. So God is angry at their rebellion. Verse 23 through 29. Yet he commanded the skies and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, and he gave them what they craved. He was angry, and yet he poured out his blessings on them. Quail from heaven, manna from heaven, he fed them. Again, spoken of in the book of Numbers, verses 30 and 31. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and He killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. So He did come in judgment, but He blessed them at the same time. Verses 32-37. through 37. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. So He made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When He killed them, they sought Him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock. The Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered Him with their mouths. They lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. They remembered who He was. And yet they continued in rebellion. Again, this is probably descriptive of the back and forth that we see in the book of Judges. Constantly. They would get taken over and they would cry out for help and God would send a judge and they would come back to God. And then they would rebel again. They'd get taken over. They'd cry out to help and they'd turn back to God over and over and over. They knew He was there and so they began to take advantage of it over and over because they knew every time they cried out, He would send a judge to redeem His people. Verse 38, Yet He being compassionate atoned for their iniquity. Let's Look at verse uh, 30, yeah, 38. Yet He, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained His anger often, did not stir up all His wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. See God's compassion over and over towards His people. Verses 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Rebellion. God knew they were rebellious. God knew how they were. But He remembered they're just flesh. They're just people. Verse 42 through 55, a longer section. They did not remember His power or the day when He redeemed them from the foe, when He performed His signs in Egypt and His marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them His burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path of anger. 
He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn of Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then He led out His people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. He brought them to His holy land, to the mountain which His right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Again, a reference to the Exodus all the way through God's bringing them through the promised land. After their constant rebellion, we're reminded again of all that God had done for them. Verse 56 through 58. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked Him to anger with their high places. They moved Him to jealousy with their idols. This is probably a reference to after they got into the promised land. They were constantly rebellious and idolatrous because they didn't finish getting rid of all of the peoples that were there. We read of that at the beginning of the book of Judges. Verses 59 through 67. When God heard, He was full of wrath and He utterly rejected Israel. He forsook His dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where He dwelt among mankind. He delivered His power to captivity, His glory to the hand of the foe. Probably a reference to when the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive by the Philistines. He gave His power over to the sword and vented His wrath on His heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and He put His adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. So God has brought judgment on His people. He has rejected the leading tribe because of their rebellion. Verse 68, But He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion which He loves. He built His sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which He has founded forever. He chose David His servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes He brought him to shepherd Jacob His people, Israel His inheritance. With upright heart He shepherded them and guided them with His skillful hand. After all that they had done, all of the rebellion, all of the murmuring, all of the complaining, all of the idolatry, God just says, fine, I reject those who are leading My people and I will establish a new king, a good king, a righteous king, who will lead My people, King David. Now, this is not an exhaustive history We can tell Asaph has not set out to explain all of the history of the Old Testament up through King David. It has no genealogies. He's not worried about whether we make sure all of the the, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. Chronological order isn't necessarily linear. We hear of the Exodus and then we go on and then we go back to the Exodus again. The Exodus is over and over used in the Old Testament as the pinnacle of God's redemption of His people. His people. Remember of the God who brought you out of Egypt. Over and over. What Asaph does do in this passage is he gathers the history thematically to prove a point. And the point is loud and clear. 
Israel has rebelled repeatedly over and over and over. And yet God has not forgotten his people. Asaph says, tell the next generation so that they can tell the next generation. God has not cast off his true people. Those who have rebelled, those who have broken the covenant, sure. Ephraim, they're out. But God has established a king to lead his true people in righteousness. He's established from the tribe of Judah, King David, to shepherd his people. He's not abandoned his true people. Now the question is, Asaph said at the beginning, I will open my mouth in a parable, a a hidden saying, a, a, a concealed form of speech. What's hidden about this? It's just history. Why are these dark sayings from of old? What is parabolic about what Asaph's doing here? Was one commentator says about this, this passage and Matthew's use of it, that history is not always self-evident. In other words, when you're going through the history, when you're living the history, you don't realize what all's going on. You don't, you don't understand. You can't see it. But what Asaph does is he gathers it all together thematically and he says, do you not realize what God has done? Do you not realize how our people have been nothing but rebellious and God has, done, has been nothing but good? He's done nothing but pursue His people. He gathers the history of the people's rebellion and the history of God's faithfulness into one song. And he says, we're going to remember this and we're going to tell our children. God has preserved a people. God has set a king over His people. Now we come back to Matthew. Why does Matthew see this psalm as significant to his purpose? Well, Matthew has included Jesus' parables on the kingdom. He's included all these different miracles, these these evidences of the lordship of Jesus. And at this point, Matthew's focus seems to shift away from a specifically Jewish ministry to the disciples and to the Uh, Israelite rejection of Jesus. So it seems like, or Matthew's readers might ask, has God's Word failed? Has God cast off His people? And we could answer the same way Paul answers. It is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are from Israel are Israel. It's not just about this people group. How has Jesus done with these parables? What Asaph attempted to do? Well, these several parables concerning the kingdom of heaven, as they are compiled and as we study them and we couple them along with everything else Jesus did in His earthly ministry, they show us what is the culmination of all of redemptive history, this kingdom. His whole ministry is the focus. His incarnation, His birth, His life, His death. His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession on our behalf, His reign as the King. All of that is the focus of all of history and the parables of the kingdom come in to explain that. And as I said at the beginning, when we understand the parables and the kingdom the way Jesus describes it in the parables, then we can turn our focus to Jesus and say, well, it's obvious He's our King. He is the Messiah. The parables of the kingdom explain how 
by all outward appearances, this kingdom that looks like it has failed, has not failed. The kingdom spreads in the hearts of God's people. The kingdom spreads through the preaching of the gospel. The kingdom was inaugurated through the birth of a servant king in a stable. Like a, like a seed mashed down into the ground and covered up where you can't even see it. But then it spreads. It starts off small and then it grows and it expands and it permeates the whole earth. And even while it's permeating, it's not in ways you can observe. You can't necessarily see it growing. You compile all this and more that we're living right now and we see that what Matthew is doing and what Jesus is doing is the same thing Asaph was doing in Psalm 78. He's trying to say, look at what God has been doing. It's not every single detail. Jesus hasn't come out with a definition of the kingdom of heaven. I thought Jordan's was great. But Jesus hasn't given us one yet. So we have to do the best we can to come up with one. He's not given us every single detail. But when we compile what we have, we can come up with a great definition. And we can put it all together and see Jesus is the culmination. Jesus is true Israel. And all who are in Him are His. Jesus Christ, the, the suffering, serving Messiah King, is the interpretive key of all that God has been doing in history. Not a geopolitical nation. Not a dot on a map. We don't stand around and watch TV fretting and biting our fingernails about what's going on in the Middle East. Jesus is the King. We are His holy nation if we are His. So in giving these parables, that becomes obvious because we know that the hearts and the minds of many ethnic Jews were blinded because He spoke in parables. So it can't just be about Israel. It can't just be about Jews. Ethnic Israel has never been the priority. They came out of Egypt. God called them out of Egypt. They complained the whole way. And then Matthew says in Matthew 2.15 that Jesus was the true Israel, the Son of God, called out of Egypt. Then they went into the wilderness complaining the whole way because of their sin. And then Matthew says in Matthew 4 that Jesus, when He came out of the water, He went into the wilderness, stood toe-to-toe with Satan, and defeated Him with just the Word of God on an empty stomach when all they did was complain about what they had to eat. Free food every day. He has fulfilled it. They went to Mount Sinai and God said, you better not touch the mountain because you're not holy enough. Stay away. Just send Moses and Aaron up because you're impure. And He gave His law. And then in Matthew 5-7, through Jesus goes on top of the mountain and He gives God's law in the Sermon on the Mount in a way only that God could do, driving it deep into the hearts of the people in a way they had never heard it. So with these parables, Jesus is revealing to His true people what had been the plan from the foundation of the world. The King is here. The Kingdom is here. The Kingdom will grow. The Kingdom will expand. And the Kingdom will draw people from every nation. So Matthew brings this section of his Gospel to a close by getting his... Jewish kinsmen to look one more time and see that all they've ever longed for, all the promises of God, find their yes and their amen in Jesus. He has fulfilled it in in this person and in the work of Jesus 
the son of David. And then for us, he tells us, God's people, all that God has ever called us to do, all that God has ever required of us, every time we look at the law of God and see that we have failed, Matthew says, look at Jesus, because He's already done it. He's already been the true and perfect Israel in the place of God's people. He's already accomplished it. In His perfect righteousness, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, Matthew is saying, glory in your Redeemer. Look at Him. He's done it. He fulfills it. It's not a new plan. It's the same thing that's been planned from the beginning of the ages. The kingdom is not a new idea. And it may not have been self-evident when it began. And it may not be self-evident now. But when we look back we will be able to see how God has worked throughout all of history in spite of our rebellion to draw His people. And we can gather it all under one theme. And we will. We'll gather it all under one theme. Psalm 78, verse 35. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. Jesus Christ is our rock and our Redeemer. He's already been everything that God has ever required of His people. And all of history pivots on the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. God has chosen a people. He sent His Son to redeem a people. Christ is King over His people, leading them with His skillful hand. God always pursues His people, even when we can't see it. Even when it doesn't seem self-evident. Let's pray.